Father, as we've looked at these uh, disciplines, uh, we are doing so to obey the command to train ourselves to be godly. We know that these things are valuable and make us more like Christ, and we pray that we would be disciplined in our lives, that we would aim to be more like Christ, who is our example in all of these things. As we look at this particular subject, we pray that you would help us and inform us, Uh, but Lord, would we not just gain intellectual knowledge, but Lord, would these things speak to our hearts, that they would change us and help us to be godly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this subject tonight of fasting. And I think it's a very misunderstood uh, discipline. Perhaps it's the one that many uh, don't understand, uh, either what it's for or even uh, what it is. So as we begin, I think it will be helpful to define uh, exactly what we mean when we say fasting. So I'm going to begin with some definitions of Christian fasting. And I say Christian fasting because fasting is, uh, is in most religions of the world, and it's also possibly uh, the most popular diet that there is out at the moment. You may have heard of various types of fasting diets, and you can buy books on fasting diets all over the place. You'll struggle to find too many books on Christian fasting. We'll see why that is as we go through it, but this is not a weight loss talk. While those books may help you to lose weight, they do not explain the biblical purposes of fasting. So what is Christian fasting? Well, hopefully this definition will come up. Christian fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. It's abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. It is true that we can fast things that are not food, such as the internet or caffeine. And these can be good things to do to help us in our self-control and all those kind of things. But normally, Christian fasting is talking about food. In fact, in the Bible, it is always about food. And there's only one exception to that, and it's only possibly an exception, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when a husband or wife can abstain from sex for a time dedicated to prayer. But every other time, it is talking about food, or abstaining from food. And so Christian fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. In the Bible, there are three types of fast. There is the absolute fast, that is, fasting where there is no water and no food. There is the normal fast, that is, fasting where you can drink water but have no food. And then there are sometimes in the Bible, but not often, fasting where you abstain from some foods or some meals in the day, such as giving up Uh, lunch to pray or some foods for a period of time such as meat. An example of that uh, is Daniel and his friends, they gave up meat for a spiritual purpose, but they didn't give up food altogether. In the Bible, fasting is often mentioned and for various lengths. Some fasts are for three days, a week, 10 days, and 40 days. But it can be any length of time providing that God, uh, that, that, it provo- that there is a purpose that God intends for you to be fasting. Although not specified uh, in the Bible, the Israelite fast, we uh, believe, was usually 24 hours. It was from sundown to sundown. And for the Israelites, there was one time a year where everybody was called to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. The Bible also explains as fasting as something that is done in private or something done as a church and even something nationally. And as we examine fasting, there's much that I could say, much we could think about, but I will take questions at the end 
for anything that we've not covered because we can't cover everything uh, within the time that we've got. But what we will look at tonight is these four things. Number one, we're going to look at why it is a neglected discipline. Number two, we're going to look at why it is that we should fast, or why, why is it in the Bible. Thirdly, we're going to look at the dangers of fasting, and then at the very end, we're going to look at some practical points to think about in terms of uh, how to fast. There are not loads of resources on fasting. If you want to find books on Bible reading and prayer, there are loads, but there's not loads of good uh, resources on fasting. But if you want to read more, I can recommend two, uh, which you can look at. Uh, this uh, one is by Arthur Wallace. It's a, a, quite a classic book now on fasting, written, I think, in the 60s, called God's Chosen Fast. It's really good um, in explaining not just why we fast, but at the end of the book, there's really good practical points uh, and a really good, interesting diary of um, someone that did a 40-day fast uh, in that. But a really good book written by John Piper is called A Hunger for God. Uh, this book is helpful in terms of the theology of fasting and um, lots of really good things. Uh, I would recommend that one first of all and the other one second. Um, if you want to have a look afterwards, you can do so. So there are two good books you can look at on fasting for more information. So to begin, first of all, fasting is a neglected discipline. It's most certainly the unwanted relation of the Christian disciplines. Some view fasting as only for hardcore Christians. If we measured uh, Christian endeavors on a scale, with at one end being a jungle missionary, and the other end being someone that perhaps would admit they're a Christian at work, but won't go any further than that, we would see fasting as not quite going to the jungle, but certainly more than what the average Christian would do. In other words, people see fasting as not for every Christian. Perhaps I'm wrong, though. Perhaps the reason that we don't hear much about fasting is because everyone is doing it in secret, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Perhaps that's the reason why it's not talked about very much and seems neglected. Maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly have my doubts as to whether that is the case. But when we look at the Bible, it may surprise you to know that it is expected, just like the other disciplines that we have looked at, such as prayer, Bible reading, giving, and so on. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he described the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in the way that they undertook the three pillars of Jewish piety, the way that they gave in alms, the way that they prayed, and in the way that they fasted. And after explaining what they all did wrong, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples, but when you give, but when you pray, and when you fast. Jesus did not say, if we give, and if we pray, and we would all say a hearty amen to those things, I'm sure, but neither did he say, if you fast. So it is expected of God's people that they do fast. Now this may be a surprise to some of you, and some of you, and some Christians do, disagree with me. And if you want to ask questions afterwards and challenge that, I'm happy to have that happen or talk about it afterwards. But most of the disagreement on fasting does not come from the Sermon on the Mount. It comes from this verse uh, or verses in Matthew chapter 9. So let me read uh, these verses to you. John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Here, Jesus is described as the bridegroom, a common description for him in the Bible, with his disciples, which includes us, being the bride. While Jesus was with them, it was a time of great joy, like at a wedding. The Messiah was here. But there would come a time when the bridegroom would be taken away. 
At this point, the longing to be together again with the bridegroom would cause his disciples to fast. Now, the disagreement comes that some people think that that was during the days when he was buried before the resurrection. That's where people would disagree whether fasting is for today for us or not. But the point here is made that after Jesus uh, was no longer here, his people would fast. My contention with the argument would be that in the book of Acts, after he ascended into heaven, when he was no longer physically here, the church was often fasting and praying. So it is something that Jesus, I believe, expects his disciples to do. And if you look at the history of the church, all the great saints of the church, which are many, all fasted regularly. In fact, even as recently as in the Second World War, the king, George VI, called this nation to fasting and prayer. So if it is expected, if it is common in Scripture, and if you look at the whole of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, fasting is all the way through, very, very common, and it's common throughout church history, why does it seem today to be so neglected? I would start by saying that from my understanding of what I've read, it's a neglect more of the Western church than it is of most other areas of Christianity. Why? Well, there may be some truth in the claim that not fasting is a reaction against legalism and asceticism, that is, um, punishing yourself. And we'll look at these things more when we look at the dangers of fasting. And it's true that we shouldn't be legalistic in fasting, and we shouldn't use fasting to punish ourselves. But really, the Western church neglects fasting not because of a response against legalism, but more likely because in the West we are an overindulgent consumer society where fasting is the antithesis of everything that we are told that is good. We are told all the time you need more and more and more. It's the opposite of fasting. And I think that this uh, element of our culture has infiltrated the church. An appetite for the temporary things of this world has replaced an appetite for God. Think about it for a moment. Do you hunger after God's presence and for God to work in our world, for his name to be glorified like you long for food or for the latest gadgets or for designer clothes or for a new car? None of those things are bad, neither is food which we're asked to fast, but those things become bad when we worship them and we put them over God. In fact, we are never asked to fast anything bad. If something is a sin, you don't fast it, you cut it off. You don't have a break from sin. You break off totally. John Piper cuts to the heart when he says this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God... It is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of this world. And I think that describes our Western Christianity and our reason for the neglect of fasting more, I think, than it's a reaction against legalism. Another reason for the neglect of fasting is highlighted by a book on fasting by a man called Scott McKnight. He argues that that fasting has been abused in church history when we separate the physical aspect from the spiritual aspect of our person. So when we don't see our bodies as part of our worship, we can see fasting as not spiritual. It can become non-existent because it can be seen as a physical thing that is not part of our spiritual lives. We separate our body from our mind and our our spirit, perhaps, 
and see it as something wholly earthy and not something to use to worship God. But Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 tells us that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, our whole self, our body, our our minds and our spirits are to worship God. When we don't see a link between the body physically and our spiritual lives, then fasting is abused either by not doing it or by doing it in the wrong way, such as punishing your body for sin and things like that. When we see the body and the spirit as part of our whole person, fasting becomes part of spiritual worship and becomes a physical expression of the spiritual hunger that we have, or as Piper calls it in his book, uh, a hunger for God, a hunger for God. Why then should we fast? We've seen it's neglected and some of the reasons why. Perhaps you can relate to some of those reasons. Why should we? Well, there are two major reasons why we fast. One major reason is this. We should fast when we don't feel a strong desire or hunger for God. Fasting, in this sense, removes the food because our physical appetites are so intense and we want instead an appetite for God. That's the first reason. We remove the food because our physical appetites are so intense we want an appetite for God instead. The other big reason for fasting is the opposite of this. The bridegroom has gone and we should be longing for him. I'll give you an illustration of uh, what I mean by this. Before I moved to Pelsall, I used to work away from Monday to Friday every week. So I was away from home for that whole time. And I would miss my family. I would have a, it, there would be weeks where that was a really hard thing to do. When it got to Friday, I was really excited because I was going home. And in fact, I was so excited on Fridays that I hardly did eat because of my excitement to get home. I didn't, I, I didn't think about food because I was wanting to go home and be with my family. That's kind of what we're talking about here with our spiritual lives. We should be, at times, longing for God so much that we don't even think about eating. You know how this feels when you are so excited for something that you don't think about food. We all have experienced that, I'm sure. Now, of course, we can't, in this case, be in a permanent fast, but there ought to be times of great longing for the Lord. And we express this through fasting and prayer. Usually, this longing comes from a spiritual need that we have. And we'll look at those in a moment. In both of these reasons, when we fast, the reward of our fasting is God himself. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 18 tells us that when we fast, uh, as we should, which we'll look at shortly, our Father rewards us. What is the reward? The reward is God himself. That longing for God is fulfilled. You know him more. You are satisfied in him and content with what he has given you. And prayers are answered. Fasting humbles ourselves before God. And the Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble. Moreover, fasting heightens our awareness of God. When we feel the hunger in our stomachs, we are reminded of why we are hungry. And so we turn to God in prayer and cry out to him. Physiologically, while making us physically weak, to a point, but I would say not as weak as you may think, it is the opposite to having a big meal. After eating loads of food, how do you feel? I feel like I want to go to sleep. Well, fasting is kind of the opposite from a physical sense. John Calvin noticed this when he talked of fasting in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin says, Whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer, 
Their sole purpose in this kind of fasting is to render themselves more eager and unencumbered for prayer. With a full stomach, our mind is not so lifted up to God. Sorry about the spelling mistake. Fasting makes us mentally more alert so that we can focus the mental energy on spiritual endeavors such as prayer and scripture reading. Fasting also gives us time to pray, which we do instead of eating. And we'll look at that more when we come to the practical side. So we fast to make us more alert and aware of God so that our hunger for him can be fulfilled. If we long for him, or our hunger for him can be enhanced if we don't long for him. So let me repeat that. We fast to make us more alert and aware of God so our hunger for him will be fulfilled if we long for him or enhanced if we don't long for him. Now from these two major reasons, there are many purposes behind fasting. We can fast for different purposes, but one thing we must understand about fasting is that fasting should always have a purpose. Always. So there's two big reasons, and from these comes lots of reasons, but it must always have a purpose. Christian fasting is not waking up one morning, not fancying breakfast, and then saying, oh, I'll fast today then. That's not Christian fasting. It is purposeful and planned and called called on by God. In the Bible, we see many purposes behind a fast, which is generated from a hunger for God that needs fulfilling. Now, we're going to look at a few examples in Scripture, but most of these reasons that I'll give actually can be found in the chapter in the Spiritual Disciplines book by uh, Donald Whitney uh, that was recommended at the beginning. His chapter on fasting is a good chapter and gives lots of good uh, sound reasons for fasting. I'm not going to use all of them, some of them, and I've got, I think, one or two of my own uh, from the scriptures. So first of all, uh, prayer is strengthened through fasting. That's the first reason, to strengthen prayer, to strengthen prayer. In the Bible, prayer has many companions. There is kneeling, there is tears, there is singing. These are all examples of of companions of prayer. And fasting is a companion to prayer too. Fasting and prayer are joined together. We don't just fast. Fasting and prayer. It gives earnestness to our prayers, in part because of the focus that it gives them. When you are hungry because of fasting, as we've said before, you're reminded of why you are fasting, which should drive us to the prayers for the things that we're fasting for. Examples in the Bible. Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 9 verse 3 sees Daniel praying with pleas for mercy and fasting. Nehemiah in chapter 1 in verse 4 fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So it's a companion of prayer. In fact, if fasting does not result in more praying and in more earnest praying, then it is not biblical fasting. Last Sunday, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David fasted as he prayed to God to deliver his son from death. The son died, and we'll see in a minute how that shows something else about fasting, But the fasting was an expression of the earnestness in prayer coming from David's soul that was outwardly expressed in his body. And that's why he stopped fasting after his son had died, because the time had had gone. His son died. God did not answer the prayer, but the fasting expressed with his body, in whole body worship, what David was praying Another example of this in a slightly different way is in Luke chapter 2 and verse 37. It talks about Anna. Anna, she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. The fasting strengthened and expressed her worship of God. So number one there, fasting strengthens prayer. Number two, discerning God's will. 
Uh, Next week, in the evening, we're going to start a series in the book of Ezra. And Ezra was a man that fasted. Uh, He had a problem in chapter 8 of the book. Ezra had to get some temple treasures all the way from Babylon down uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And he called on the people in chapter 8 and verse 23 to fast and to seek the Lord how they could do this and to pray for God to guide them. In the early church, in Acts, we see fasting over God, uh, over guidance from God in terms of sending out missions, missionaries. In chapter, with Saul and Barnabas in chapter 13 and chapter 14. And God guided them. When you are unsure how to deal with a situation, how to solve a problem, fasting and prayer combined really do help. While fasting, you ask God to guide you. You take notes, you pray over those things. And fasting helps you to focus attention not just on the problem, but on the great problem solver, on God. Fasting for discerning God's will is a very common fast in the Bible. Thirdly, response to grievous moments. Responding to grievous moments. Fasting is often a response to grief, either over the death of someone we love or grief over sin. And I think this is the most understood and natural aspect of fasting. Who really feels like eating after a time, uh, during a time of great grief? If a loved one has died or something awful has happened, we don't feel like eating. We understand that aspect of fasting. But the big application of this talk is an encouragement to add fasting to prayer. But in this case, I would encourage you to add prayer to fasting. For isn't it in those times of grief and despair where we fast, but we ignore God and we decide, I don't want to be at church. I can't cope with Christian things. It's an encouragement to add prayer, in that case, to fasting. In grief, the fasting should express a hunger for God to come and bring comfort or justice in the midst of grief. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 1 Uh, David and his men tore their clothes and mourned and wept over Saul and Jonathan's death, just like the men of Jabesh Gilead did in 1 Samuel 31. They fasted for seven days over Saul and Jonathan's death. Ezra, again, in Ezra chapter 10, he fasted over grief for sin. It says in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 6, because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. There was such sin In Israel, it caused Ezra to fast and to pray and and express his grief over sin. And the most famous fast in the whole of Scripture over sin is in Nineveh. In Nineveh, it was spent so far, they even asked the animals to fast. In Jonah chapter 3, in verse 7 and 8, it says, Do not let people or animals taste anything. And they fasted and called on God to turn his wrath away from them. And they repented of their sin. And God did relent. He, Nineveh was saved. It must be noted in that case that fasting for grief over sin was not what it was that merited their forgiveness. Fasting, we'll see in the dangers, is not something to twist God's arm so that he will forgive us. We don't have a, uh, I'll pray and God will forgive me, and I'll pray and fast and God will really forgive me. God's forgiveness is complete without fasting. But fasting expresses to God the depth of our feeling. And notice in Jonah how it was accompanied by repentance. We don't fast to get forgiveness so we can sin again. That's Again, that's uh, not a reason to fast. Fourthly, another reason for deliverance or protection. We saw in Ezra 8 how Ezra fasted for guidance, but he also fasted for protection. That As they took the treasures down to Jerusalem, God would protect them. But the most famous biblical fast for protection was, of course, the fast of Esther. The evil plot of Haman threatened to wipe out the Jewish people all across the world. Esther was asked to go to the king, which she was not allowed to do. And so she told her uncle Mordecai, to gather together all the Jews in Susa, which was the city uh, where they were, and to fast and pray for three days. 
Ezra did this too. And after she fasted, she went to the king. And we see in that story, there was deliverance for God's people. Notice that there was no guarantee in Esther's prayer that because they fasted, they would be protected. But as so often is the case, the fasting and prayer did result in deliverance for God's people. When we face spiritual danger or we face attack, we should fast and pray. The temptation is to strike back in anger, to face things head on ourselves. But the biblical response to danger spiritually is fasting and prayer. What do we need protection from? Sometimes the evil one attacks in the church, and you can sense it. There is infighting, there is gossip, people get annoyed with one another, people don't get on together. Sometimes there's a particular situation, perhaps on the mission field, where a missionary that we support might be arrested or being persecuted, or, and we hear about it. Fasting and prayer for their protection or deliverance. Sometimes individuals can be accused of evil that they haven't done. All sorts of things. We could be going to a place where we are going to struggle. There might be temptation. We pray and fast over those things. Uh, I think fifthly, fasting to overcome temptation or overcome a besetting sin, a sin that you're habitually in, that you're, you're struggling with. And within, uh, I would class that within the deliverance, but when Jesus was going into the wilderness, he was going to be tempted by the devil, he fasted during that time. In part, that was to uh, associate himself with Israel when they were in the wilderness, but nevertheless, we see Jesus fasting and praying as he was attacked by Satan. When we know we are going to face a specific temptation, then fasting can help us to have the spiritual alertness we need to keep focusing on God and by his power overcome temptation. Furthermore, the fasting which strengthens our prayers expresses our mourning over those habitual sins and the guidance we need about practical things we can do to cut off those things. I think a final uh, couple of reasons. Uh, Number six Expressing concern for the work of God. Expressing concern for the work of God. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Nehemiah fasted and prayed over the work of God in Jerusalem. The work wasn't moving forward, the walls around the city were destroyed, and he had heard that the people were in trouble. And Nehemiah writes, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And after he fasted, he went and got involved in God's work and organized the rebuilding of the walls. As Nehemiah was concerned over the work of God in rebuilding Jerusalem, should we not be concerned for the work of God amongst people in Pelsall, about the many unsaved families, about the state of the nation that we live in spiritually? There are occasions, and most of the ones we've looked at, where we fast as a response to a need that we feel. So we feel grief over sin, we feel the need uh, for protection, we need to strengthen prayer. But here, I think, is an example of that other big reason for fasting. Because often we don't feel a concern for the work of God. We do become uh, a bit apathetic, perhaps. And I think here there's a, a, a need sometimes to fast for a concern for the work of God, to hunger for God to come in reviving power and to bring salvation. And the final uh, reason that I'll give, although there are maybe a couple of others as well, but we can't cover everything, but the final reason is to provide for the needs of others. Sometimes fasting enables us to use the food we are not eating or the money we would have spent on food in order to provide for somebody else. Uh, A a kind of an example in this uh, is the widow of Zarephath. She provided food for Elijah out of her poverty. We'll mention Isaiah 58 shortly in looking at some of the dangers, but it says there that God's chosen fast is to share food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And in the history of the church, 
uh, one of the most common reasons for fasting has been that they do not eat in order to give their food to somebody else that's in need. And the lifestyle of the early Methodists was very simple in this way in order that they could give more. As we look at all of these reasons, we can see why fasting is expected and should be regular. Only when we have no need to discern God's will, when we no longer grieve over sin or death, when we no longer need to strengthen prayer, when we're always concerned for the work of God to be done, do we need to stop fasting? And when will that be? It'll be when the bridegroom returns, as we looked at in Matthew 19. So then what is the answer to the question, why fast? I think we can summarize the answer in this. So that we can express with our bodies our spirit's hunger for God for a particular purpose, which causes us to be more physically and thus more spiritually alert to respond to God in effective prayer. We know then that fasting is expected and we know why. But we must be aware of the dangers of fasting. There are dangers to this discipline. And the first danger is this, that we think we merit answers to prayer if we attach fasting to them. We think we merit answers to prayer if we attach fasting to them. As if we are twisting God's arm and getting him to answer our prayer. This is completely wrong, and it's against all that the gospel teaches about all we have from God, including answers to prayer, being given by grace. Hear this clearly. Fasting is a response to a need, not a way of getting stuff from God. Fasting is a response to a need, not a way of getting stuff from God. Scott McKnight helpfully says, the focus in the Christian tradition is not, if you fast, you will get, but when this happens, God's people will fast. So he says, it is not, if you fast, you will get, but when this happens, God's people will fast. It's a response to a need. And we've seen this in the purposes for fasting. We do not fast if we do not have a need. This, by the way, shows one of the problems, perhaps, of the Western church. We think we have all we need, and so we don't fast. In this sense, fasting... Um, oh, sorry, John Piper, by the way, one more quote from him. Uh, he says this, Fasting is not first offered to God that we might be paid back because of it. It is first given by God that we might benefit from it and that he might be glorified through it. So it's not twisting God's arm so that he pays us back, but it's given to us as a gift that we might benefit from it and he might be glorified through it. In this sense, fasting is similar to prayer. Prayer is an expression of dependence on God an adoration of God. Prayer is not a means of getting what we want. It's not a way of twisting God's arm. Except, of course, when we adore God and we want what God wants, we do get what we want, don't we? Fasting in and of itself does not guarantee us answers to prayer. Look at David last week. He fasted, he prayed, his son still died. However, we cannot get away from the fact that in the Bible, usually, but not always, God does respond to fasting. Usually, but not always, he does. But this is not because of the merits of the faster, but rather because the fasting, the, the fasting Christian is more in tune with God because they are fasting. And therefore, they're more likely to receive the answers to prayer. Does that make sense? Because they're more in tune with God because they're fasting and they're praying, they're more likely to receive those answers to prayer. It's not the merit of the faster, it's the effectiveness of what's going on as we fast, as we relate to God. 
Another example where God did not respond to fasting is Isaiah 58. If you have a Bible, turn there because it's a, a, a sizable uh, uh, reading. Well, not, it's not that big, it's just three verses, but there's a lot of words in it, so I, I didn't want to put it on the screen as such. But Isaiah 58 uh, and verses 6 to 9. To put this passage in context, God's people here had been fasting, but doing so sinfully. They were fasting so that God would work for them. They were trying to twist his arm. Whilst at the same time, they were sinning through exploiting the poor. And so in verse 6 of Isaiah 58, God begins to tell them the fast that he has chosen. So let's look from verse 6. Is not this the kind of fast that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. The danger here is substituting religious discipline for righteous living. Substituting religious discipline for righteous living. The people of Isaiah's time were fasting, they were doing the discipline, but they weren't living as God wanted them to live. They were expecting God to bless them, but they were being harsh towards the poor and exploiting them. And God warns us in this passage about substituting religious uh, disciplines for righteous living. I will fast and show God how disciplined I am and how much I love him, but I will not love my neighbor. You see, that is not Christian fasting, and that is a danger. We think we can fast, so we're really spiritual, so we can get away with something else. That's not right at all. And in fact, God tells the people he will respond in blessing to to the fasting with light and healing and influence in the world when it's accompanied by justice the release of oppression and care for the poor. Another danger, a third one, is that of pride. And this is where Jesus warns about, uh, what Jesus warns about in Matthew 6. He says in Matthew 6 about fasting to be seen by others. He says that like in prayer, we should fast in secret. Now again, like with prayer, it doesn't exclude public fasts. We see that in the Bible, public prayer meetings where there is fasting, But it does exclude fasting so that you can be seen by others. And so I would say, as an application of this, that you're not wise to mention it to others when you're fasting. What's the point? Why do you need to do that? In Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 to 14, the Pharisee in Luke 18 says, I fast twice a week. But in that parable, it was the tax collector that went home justified because he pleaded to God for mercy. Fasting can cause us to be puffed up. It can cause us to think that we're super spiritual, especially if others aren't fasting. So beware of the danger of pride when fasting. Fasting, like prayer, will not be effective if it's invaded by pride. And the final danger uh, is that of legalism. This is where you fast to go through the motions. The Jews used to traditionally fast every Tuesday and Thursday. And Christians in history, to be different, fasted instead on Wednesdays and Fridays. John Wesley's Methodist ministers had to do this as a rule. Whilst regular fasting in this way is a a good thing, we've got to be careful if you do that of not just going through the motions. Today's Wednesday. I've got to fast. That's not what we should be doing at all. We must always have a purpose behind the fast. And if you're going to fast on particular days of the week, have a purpose in advance of what you're going to pray over and fast for on that day. Before we finish, let me just go through some practical uh, ways that we can apply this discipline in our Christian lives. First of all, though, on a practical point, I want to mention health. There will be some who cannot fast for health purposes. And God understands this. 
In fact, if you're going to fast for more than a day, it might be a wise thing to consult a doctor about doing it. Almost all the books on fasting that I've read have almost exclusively said, see a doctor before you're going to do a longer fast. And if health is a problem, perhaps you can ask yourself whether you can miss a meal or uh, miss a part of a meal or fast in a partial way or something like that. Uh, I can't advise, I'm not a doctor, um, but it's something to think about. But we do need to be aware that there are people that due to health cannot fast. But I would also say we need to be aware that we don't use those things as an excuse. Hunger is not illness. Even for those whose health does not prevent fasting, we need to be aware that it does cause headaches, especially if you are addicted to caffeine and sugar. Also, you can get quite bad heartburn through fasting. Some people can become irritable when they haven't eaten, and we need to be aware of that too. John Piper, he goes and says that that's a blessing. Because he says that when you fast, it should bring out the worst in us, so we know what that is, and we can pray and confess and work on it. That's what Piper says. I kind of agree with him, but I'm not sure I'm going to use it as an excuse to be irritable. Beware of physical exercise during fasting. You can exercise, but you will not have the energy you would have if you've eaten a bowl of pasta or a Snickers bar beforehand. Obviously, the main health part is that you will be hungry. However, I would say it is not an excuse to complain that you're hungry. Don't go around like the Pharisees did, saying, oh, I'm so hungry because I'm fasting. That's not right either. So that's to do with the health. Another practical point is if you have never fasted before, or it's something you might not have done for many, many years, start small. Don't go straight into a week-long fast or even a three-day fast. You need to build up to that kind of fast. So perhaps begin by just missing a meal a couple of times and then build up to 24 hours or whatever it is that you feel God has given you a purpose for. But don't expect to be uh, you know, going for a week when you've never fasted before. It's, just, it's not a good idea. Start small um, as you do so. Uh, The third practical point, and this is possibly the most important one, plan your fast well. Plan it well. If fasting has a purpose, we must plan the purpose and when we're going to do the fast. It's not usual, and it's not even right in my opinion, to just wake up one day and say, I'm going to fast today. When planning a fast, we need to plan in what the purpose is. Why are we doing it? What are you going to pray about? When are you going to pray? And if you plan something, put it in the diary and you're more likely then to do it. Because fasting is a response to something that is needed, we can't always plan too far ahead. But you could plan in days around when activities are happening in the church out of concern for the Lord's work. So you could fast on Friday for the children and young people in the area, or on Tuesday for the outreach among the elderly or in the community in general with friends and neighbours or coffee morning. You could plan fasts for the days of prayer or a day during the week of prayer that we have. However you plan it, it must have a purpose and it must drive us to more praying. So it's really important to plan the fasting that we do. Another helpful thing we could do And it doesn't contradict what I've said before, but we could at times pray uh, and fast with other people. Just like a prayer meeting is with other people, we can fast with other people. This may be helpful in a small group or even uh, as a home group. Mine are really worried now, I'm sure. uh, With a particular purpose in mind. Doing it together, like any of the disciplines, can give us accountability and mutual encouragement. I'm going to end with answers to two questions that have cropped up the most over the last week. Number one, are we still eating tonight? Yes. Number two, is it right that we eat tonight after we've had a talk on fasting? Yes. Paul tells us that we should eat and drink to God's glory, and it is good that we can enjoy food together. 
Also, whilst there is a place for fasting corporately, I don't think it's right to force everyone to have to do it without a good purpose behind it. So with those two burning questions answered, uh, I open up uh, to everyone else uh, to ask any questions that they feel they want to ask, and Tom has got the microphone at the back. So I'm going to have a drink of water, and you can put your hand up if you have a question. I don't know. (laughs) Just responding to the medical aspect, there's absolutely no danger doing without a couple of meals, apparently. It actually helps your body to repair itself. So a period of fasting, say, from 6 o'clock one evening through to 6 o'clock the next day, unless you are nursing mother, pregnant, diabetic, or whatever, um, apparently there is absolutely no danger whatsoever it's actually beneficial and personally I, I agree with everything you said and I think it's a major breakthrough sometimes in answers to prayer yeah thank you yeah if you want to know more about the health aspects of fasting uh, there's a little bit in Arthur Wallace's book but there's loads of books on on that kind of thing just secular books that aren't spiritual at all on health benefits and things like that um so so yeah thank you yeah No more? All right. Well, uh, if you want to have a uh, talk about anything we've mentioned uh, afterwards, uh, then do feel free to come and speak to me. Uh, even if you uh, want to challenge anything that's been said, uh, that's fine too, because I know this might be uh, perhaps difficult for some of you to, to hear or to um, something you've never thought about before. Uh, so do... Uh, come and ask afterwards. But let me pray and we'll give thanks to the food uh, before we share it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you do give us food and that food is a wonderful gift that you have given us. We thank you that you, uh, in in the Bible, uh, show food to be a really good thing. And so help us not to feel uh, that food is anything negative but rather something to be enjoyed together as your people in thanksgiving. But help us too, Lord, not to uh, be overindulgent in our Christian lives and in our physical appetites. And help us, Lord, to seek to discipline ourselves in the area of fasting in such a way that would bring glory to the name of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.